If you were watching News Hub on Sunday evening, you would have seen a good news story. Pharmac is funding the drug Trikafta, which extends the life of those with cystic fibrosis. And News Hub film Patrick Gower delivering the news about that decision to Bella Powell, who has cystic fibrosis and has been taking Trikafta thanks in part to the financial assistance of the late Dr. Sir Bob Elliott. He was one of the nation's top experts on the disease. And so here's that call from Patrick Gower. Bella, it's happening. Pharmac are going to be funding Trikafta. <laughs> oh my God. Bella has cystic fibrosis and is only alive because of Trikafta. I don't know what to do. This is such a weird feeling. So that applause was coming from members of the News Hub newsroom behind Patrick Gower and Pal perhaps didn't quite know what to say because News Hub had sent someone along to film her getting a phone call in the park where she lives in Sydney so it hasn't happened to me in the past but I I imagine that's a bit of a discomforting experience for anyone and so Gower went on to well a very happy experience but quite discomforting. Uh, Gower went on to close the package with a brief live Q&A with the presenter Laura Tupo and that finished like this. Look, I know a lot of people with cystic fibrosis and I also know a lot who have been lucky enough to find ways to access Trikafta. Every single one of them has told me it's a miracle drug. It takes effect from the very first pill and changes their lives. So for them, this is a Christmas miracle. It is the ultimate gift, the gift of life. Now, some people, um, media watchers Colin Peacock, might quibble with that word miracle. These drugs are definitely man-made. I don't mind it. I don't mind the word miracle and its colloquial usage like that, but uh, man-made a miracle, there's no doubt about this drug's effectiveness. Elsewhere in the package, you had an expert on saying that Trikafta could give people living with cystic fibrosis in New Zealand an extra 27 healthy years of life. So pretty significant. Yeah, very significant. But it's all to do with money, isn't it, Hayden? The reason why it's taken so long to get the drug funded? Yes, it is all to do with money and a few other things, a few other complications, but mainly money. And in our media stories, most of the heat for that funding decision or lack thereof has been directed at our drug funding agency Pharmac with some journalists blaming the lack of funding for Trikafta on what they say is bureaucratic red tape and that focus on the apparent stinginess or slowness of Pharmac has taken I think the pressure off another organisation at the heart of the story and that's Trikafta's manufacturer Vertex Pharmaceuticals and it was reportedly as you say charging $330,000 per patient per year for the drug and that may funding it a pretty difficult task for Pharmac, even though it has an annual billion dollar budget that has to you know, be spread across the entire health sector, a huge range of conditions and diseases, and I think that it was taking up an immense portion of its budget to fund it at that level. So, uh, you know, it, even if it could afford it, though, you had the issue of, this is another thing, Vertex hadn't applied to register Trikafta in New Zealand, and it didn't do so until June 2021, after which you have to go through a period of evaluation, which I don't understand, but before funding for a drug is confirmed. Uh, now, I think that, tri- that that Trikafta's manufacturer, Vertex, was probably probably pretty happy 
uh, to charge those prices and let the potent media story at the heart of this issue do its marketing for it, essentially. So it's difficult for governments or Pharmac, an agency like that, to turn down Tricafta when you can see articulate young people like Bella Powell, so full of potential, uh, on camera saying they'll die without it. It's impossible to put a price on her life. Uh, but it's worth noting that Pharmac isn't the only agency that was doing exactly that. Vertex is and was as well, and it put the price on her life at $330,000 per year. And patients are only getting the drug now because Pharmac was able to negotiate a discount, which remains apparently commercially sensitive and secret. So you can understand, I think, why the media targeted Pharmac. They're far more likely to be pressured than an international drug company with the whole architecture of capitalism behind it. You know, you can't exactly take that down as Patrick Gower on News Hub. But I think it's worth noting that there was another agency here that was really uh, gumming up the works, and Vertex arguably deserved a bit more of that media ire as well as Pharmac. Yeah, but nevertheless, it is a happy ending. Uh, Tricaft is funded, but uh, Pharmax found itself in more hot water. What's going on there? Yeah, somehow this is uh, still <laughs> provoked more more difficult or, or or negative coverage for Pharmac. They've become embroiled in a dispute with MediaWorks over its station Today FM's coverage of the story, which has ended with Pharmac apparently putting the entire company MediaWorks on a media blacklist. What does that mean, a media blacklist? They're not going to talk to them apparently until they can trust them again. So just as some context, uh, those News Hub clips that I played, they actually went to air on Sunday. Uh, but it wasn't actually the first news organisation to report that story. Today FM did so on Friday with its early morning presenter Rachel Smalley, Rachel Smalley, sorry, appearing on its afternoon presenter Lloyd Burr's show to deliver the news that four sources had told her that Tricafta was set to be funded. Now here's where things get a little bit complicated. So before that interview went to air, seemed significant, Lloyd Burr contacted Pharmac to confirm that Smalley's news was correct, that she had it accurate. And uh, he says three spokespeople, two in-house, one external, they all told him and his producer that his story was inaccurate. The drug wasn't about to be funded. Not only that, but one of the spokespeople said that he was about to apparently break the hearts of all those with cystic fibrosis by running this story. Wow. Yes. So, uh, obviously, he wasn't. They were about to fund Tricafta. That was inaccurate information, and he wasn't the one passing it on. So they went to air anyway because Smalley apparently said, obviously, accurately, that her sources were watertight. And after they did, uh, the Pharmac chief executive, Sarah Fitt, emailed MediaWorks bosses to say that her interview had broken what she called a sensitive embargo. Now, according to Burr, she said no one from Pharmac would speak to anyone from Media Media Works until she knew they could trust the organisation again. And were they breaking an embargo? Well, this is the thing. According to Burr, uh, there was no embargo to break. They hadn't been emailed any information by Pharmac, uh, let alone any embargoed information from Pharmac. So, in fact, this... Obviously, as I, I'll repeat, this went to air on Friday. The actual email with the embargo from Pharmac didn't come through until Sunday afternoon. So how could you break an embargo that hadn't actually been imposed on them yet? So uh, this is how he, he's obviously pretty riled up. This is how he talked about it on air. 
trust us? The question should be around public trust in you, Farmac, because you didn't tell us the truth. Three of your comms staff, staff told us that we were wrong when indeed we were right. How can we trust you after such blatant lies? And we didn't break any embargo because you didn't send us the embargoed information until Sunday at 2.19pm. That's two days after we broke the story. Well, that's telling them, isn't it? Yes, and it was all in that uh, tone. So obviously he wasn't exactly happy with Farmac. Now, in his monologue, though, Burr hinted at one reason why Farmac might have been so upset about him breaking the news about Trikafta on Friday, and it wasn't because he was going to break the hearts of those with cystic fibrosis. He kind of hinted that the agency had already had a deal in place with News Hub for it to break the story on its Sunday evening show. So here's what he had to say there. It's also not unusual for government departments to cherry-pick journalists to tell their story, particularly in telly, where it can take a while to film all of the elements. But it is unusual for this kind of approach on an important public health announcement. That is why it's unusual, particularly when those who will benefit from the drug have to take a back seat to those who are announcing it. And that makes sense as well. Yes. So, I mean, it hasn't been definitively established that Pharmac had an understanding with News Hub, but it is worth noting that, uh, you know, those clips that I played at the start and News Hub's story itself, they did seem to have a level of cooperation from Pharmac that other news organisations just didn't have. So it's News Hub's cameras went inside Pharmac's offices and they filmed this exchange where that chief executive, Sarah Fitt, broke the funding decision news to a Trikafta campaigner with cystic fibrosis called Ed Lee. Here's how that went. Trikafta campaigner Ed Lee, who has cystic fibrosis, has been paying for his own pills and was told directly by Pharmac Chief Executive Sarah Fitt with our camera present. Thank you so much. I, I want to give you a hug. Oh, I want to give you a hug. Thank you. <laughs> so how have other media organisations responded to Pharmac's actions here and its uh, proposed media works blacklisting? Yeah, so I mean, obviously that was some pretty decent PR for Sarah Fit and Pharmac there, giving someone a hug as they delivered this good news to them. Uh, but Burr and Today FM aren't the only ones a bit riled up by how the drug buying agency has conducted its media rollout here. So on the spin-off, Emily Wrights notes that News Hub's story, you know, had more details in it, uh, not just than uh, other media, but than the press release given to media like her who have covered the story for a long time. They had details like patients wouldn't have to pay for the drug and that wasn't in the media release. Uh, and she said that the strong arm tactics by Pharmac were pretty unusual for a public agency. Yeah, there's also the question of whether Pharmac purposely held back that decision, including from some people who actually have cystic fibrosis in order to get the most the best publicity out of it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what's so galling to people who have been covering this for so long because this was, as you say, as Pharmac said, something that would break the hearts of people with cystic fibrosis. They've been looking forward to this campaigning for it for so long and this idea that, that it would be so stage managed and that it would be kept from some people, even in the cystic fibrosis community and their supporters, is pretty galling to them. Uh, uh, as Emily writes and others, it's just this idea that Pharmac is essentially using this public health announcement, as Lloyd Burr says, as PR and removing access for media 
who don't frame it in the way that the organization wants them to, in favorable terms for Pharmac. And so her words are, Pharmac isn't a benevolent king bestowing gifts on peasants. It didn't give trichafta to us. Adults with cystic fibrosis and their families and parents of children with cystic fibrosis and their families fought like hell for it to frame it any other way or be cut off for telling the truth is just plain wrong. So there's this feeling, I think, that Pharmac can't play the neutral and dispassionate drug funding agency when it suits and when it wants to make hard decisions. And then the benevolent, compassionate helper, uh, when it's time to get good PR and forbid other people from portraying it in any other way. So, uh, and I think there's also the sense that of all organisations, maybe this is the media perspective, Pharmac should be... uh, they should understand the value of independence in the face of outside pressure. That's really their whole gig. But given that, maybe it should actually value the media's editorial independence as well and not be putting pressure on them. Yeah, well, it's not the only debate about editorial independence this week. Uh, Mr Willie Jackson's appearance on Q&A also prompted uh, some questions about that particular topic. That's right. So the Broadcasting Minister, Willie Jackson, roundly criticised for an interview with Q&A's Jack Tame on Sunday, which his opponents described uncharitably as a train wreck and he himself admitted was not his best work. So the interview touched on a few media topics, quite important ones, but it was actually, for some reason, the segment about the proposed merger of RNZ and TVNZ that gained the most criticism and prompted the most controversy. And perhaps that was because of segments in it like this one. How can you possibly expect the New Zealand public to trust whatever entity results? Listen to what the submitters say in terms of the select committee. 60 to 70% of the submitters support the entity. They want a few changes, particularly around the editorial side. You're doing such a negative interview today. I'm very disappointed in you. So I'm very disappointed in you. That wasn't really an isolated little uh, jibe there from Jackson. He repeatedly referred to TVNZ as your people and Simon Power as your CEO talking to Jack Tame. And he sort of jibed Tame about his so-called mates and national and chided him at least once more, not just that clip that I played for his supposed negativity about the RNZ-TVNZ merger. It's not unusual, though, for Willie Jackson, Hayden, is it? He's a on-again, off-again broadcaster, and he likes a good scrap. He always has, and, ex- and we knew that was his style going into uh, this role. Uh, it always has been his style. He has a history of giving vociferous feedback on the media's performance. He posted on Facebook about Mike Hosking's interviewing style with Jacinda Ardern. He gave Media Watch <laughs> itself some less than glowing feedback after Colin interviewed him earlier this year. I remember when I was working with him on Radio Live, he in fact went through the entire uh, day part shifts and uh, gave his opinion of everybody else on the radio Okay, so, I mean, (laughs) he's not shy of giving an opinion or live commentary on people, and he does seem to be able to get away with it. Uh, And maybe has been able to get away with it. Maybe not always. Maybe not always. He is notoriously as well, and this is linked to this one, the people behind what might have been the worst broadcast interview in history, in New Zealand history, with one of the friends of the victims of the Roastbusters gang. But we won't go into that tonight. Uh, I guess... In one sense, it's not that strange for him or for the government to complain to media entities about coverage they feel is unfair or inaccurate. But it's just a little bit different, and and it comes off a bit different when you're the broadcasting minister. You're one of two shareholding ministers in TVNZ. You're an influential voice when it comes to funding. You're, to some extent, the boss, and your barbs take on a different tone, particularly... 
uh, when you're being interviewed <laughs> about your efforts to com- completely reshape the public media entity that you're currently a- appearing on in TVNZ. So, I mean, that point was made by a bunch of commentators, including the Herald's Thomas Coughlin, and he said Jackson's conduct was worrying, especially given concerns are being raised about the editorial independence or lack thereof of the new RNZ TVNZ mega entity. And he also kind of pointed out a bit of an irony that this tough interview for Jackson was an example of the current system working well. Q&A is a publicly funded show on a state-owned station and it was giving the minister what for. So it's sort of sort of a, a bit of evidence, you know, what's wrong if this can happen right now. But it's part of Willie Jackson's MO to get down on the shop floor, you know, be one of the boys. So maybe he thought he was just doing that. I think that that is really, I honestly think that that was what was happening. And even when you're watching it, it was pretty clear he was joking around, he was jabbing and he was kind of being a little bit, you know, fun or funny, and he said as much himself. So he acknowledged some missteps with that interview to the media, but explained he's had a pretty good relationship with Jack Tame and his jabs should be seen in that context. And Tame himself actually confirmed the same thing in an appearance on Heather Duplessy Allen's show, The Huddle. So here's that clip. I personally had absolutely no expectation of an apology from Willie Jackson. He and I have got along, like, super well for years, you know, and... um you know, and, and I hope that we continue to get along well. You know, it's a, that the, the interviewing live interview environment is a pretty unique mm. environment. But I, I, I don't think there's any suggestion Willie owes me an apology. I, I, don't, I don't feel like he owes me one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. I think that there is a little bit of a relationship there, and maybe it was a bit of sort of uh, jabbing back and forth between people who have been friendly. So it's it's worth noting that perhaps. Uh, some of those jokes were ill-advised, but Jackson was pretty clear in the interview that he did want to ensure the new TVNZ RNZ entity does have watertight editorial independence from the government. Well, there's been a lot of talk about style, but what about the actual substance of the interview? What did Jackson actually say about this new media entity? Yeah, he was pressed for new information. He didn't give a huge amount of it, but he did say that he wants to get legislation uh, on it to the House by the end of the year or early next year. He said he wanted it set up, I think, in July next year. So, you know, don't get too Pre-election. comfy. Pre-election, exactly. So it's a bit harder to dismantle, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, you know, don't get too comfortable in this this plush studio. We could be moving to the TVNZ offices if things go away. To be honest, TVNZ is a lot nicer. I doubt whether that's going to happen. Yeah, we're going to stay here, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, with the beer tablecloth. <laughs> yeah, that's what, what is this? If, I wish that the listeners could see this tablecloth. It's not a visual medium, but goodness, it's quite it's quite striking. Um, the, the only thing, I guess, that he was challenged, the other thing that he was challenged on was his, was that this is often criticised as a solution in search of a problem. You know, what is the problem with TVNZ and RNZ as things stand? That's, that's been the common critique. And in some ways that's understandable. You've got TVNZ and RNZ. They both have bedded in audiences that they serve pretty well and like them uh, well enough. And they don't think, those audiences don't think there's a huge case for change. And on Q&A, Jackson kind of took a stab at explaining the rationale for doing this merger, saying the whole media landscape is under threat from giant tech companies. And I guess social media is changing young people's media consumption habits hugely. And he said that New Zealand deserves an equivalent of the ABC or BBC 
uh, where they've, they've got combined TV and radio arms in the same entity, albeit they're wholly publicly funded bodies. They're not this kind of hybrid that is being proposed between a commercial TVNZ and a non-commercial RNZ. So in, an, in, in a separate interview, I thought this was notable, with Ryan Bridge, Jacinda Ardern she, said she wants to set up a version of the BBC to tell our stories because Netflix isn't going to do it. But she also said this. If we want to make sure that we are supporting New Zealanders through this rough period, getting rid of our public service broadcasters or having Radio New Zealand collapse doesn't help them and it actually doesn't help New Zealand. How close is RNZ Uh, to collapse? If I can finish my answer, Ryan. I'll ask you, how close is RNZ to collapse? I think that might have been a little bit of an exaggeration by the PM. So RNZ, there was some uh, pretty bad rating surveys how were your but you know, recently you got your ratings didn't you Karen how how were they they were good yeah they went okay. up okay so the 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 crumpers what were Brian Crump's fans were they called crumpers they they stayed with you <laughs> they stayed with you I and, hope so yeah. <laughs> yeah some of them might have gone over to concert but I hope they're still here no they went up which was great it yeah was so obviously we're not completely in danger of collapse and I think that might have been a little bit of an exaggeration so I think maybe the best. Maybe it's the infrastructure as opposed to the ratings. We, the building does seem in danger of collapse. <laughs> I don't keep talking like this. And I think the best actual defence of this merger actually came from outside the government. Duncan Grieve in the spin-off noted that uh, we've got surveys now that young people are barely consuming TV. They're not on RNZ. Our audience demographics are older and they're Pākehā. And there's a whole demographic, demographic of young people, Māori, Pacifica people, that are paying taxes for public media and aren't being well served by the biggest public media entities we have. And so they should be served digital-first content and content that caters for them. At the moment, there's an issue of fairness there. And that's absolutely the case. Maybe this merger will help address that, but Duncan Grieve actually comes up with another solution as well. He says, why don't you just set up a new entity called Digital NZ or beef up our, um, New Zealand on air and make sure that they're providing that digital content because actually, yeah, young people are getting their content from Netflix and TikTok and all these places. Digital NZ CEO he'd be? Yeah, maybe. Maybe he's angling for that. <laughs> uh, by the way, there was another big bit of media news from that Q&A interview. Yeah, I uh, don't want to dwell on it too long, but Willie J- I think Willie Jackson would have been miffed because he was here to announce good news. He's saying that he's going to legislate so that Facebook and Google are forced to negotiate pay deals with New Zealand media companies. And so that's following Canada and Australia. They've introduced similar legislation, and basically it works that these Facebook, well, Meta now, and Google, they can do voluntary deals. And if they don't, then they're forced by the government into arbitration and that arbitrator will set the deal, uh, perhaps not in favourable terms to Facebook or Google. So, I mean, uh, it, it seems that maybe we're looking at a similar situation here, maybe with some tweaks to ensure smaller players in the media market are catered for. The government projects it'll raise between 30 and $50 million a year for the media. I'm kind of maybe just drawing on blank canvas here because there weren't that many details actually shared on Q&A. And there's probably a few questions to ask about exactly what mechanisms will be in place, how it will work, especially given Jackson said he wants to get it in place next year. And what is the length of time if it's going to take two years to set up? Actually, Meta's sort of hemorrhaging users right now. It's sinking billions into a metaverse that no one actually uses. Will it be in good shape in two years? Will it actually be agreeing to pay deals? You know, it's laid off 11,000 staff recently. It's different to compel a monopoly with immense power 
to the table, but maybe the, some of these uh, companies are looking a bit shaky. Haven't we already done deals between companies like Meta and places like yeah. NZME? Yeah, yes, we have, actually. There's places like NZME and actually the spin-off and, 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 that have done deals already. Some of them are not long-term. You know, they might come up for review and this might give them a little bit more of a, 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 a leverage in that bargain. Uh, in that bargaining process. Uh, but I mean, Jackson was also concerned that the little guys are not being catered for in the current situation. You know, how He said, how can the Northern Advocate or the Whanganui Chronicle go up against Meta as an example of those little guys? That was kind of funny, I think, because uh, both of those papers are actually owned by NZME. NZME, that's right. That's the <laughs> NZME. No, NZME. NZME. So, the, the, you know, <laughs> take his point, though. Why is it actually needed? Weren't our media organisations just given permission to bargain collectively with Facebook and Google? Yeah, they were. The Newspaper Publishers Association, they were given that permission. And uh, I guess Jackson is basically pitching this legislation as a backstop. If the tech giants won't come to the table in the threat of collective negotiation from what amounts to probably pretty small media players, really, in the in the scheme of things for them, uh, then they could be forced to the table by government legislation. And that was a course of action recommended by a guy called Rod Sims, who's known as the man who forced Facebook and Google to pay for news. He did an interview with us on Media Watch a few months ago. He said, you really need that threat hanging over the social media companies or the tech companies for them to actually bargain. And so how have our news companies responded to this news? Well, I will say they are welcoming in amongst the critical coverage of Willie Jackson. They're welcoming this announcement. And uh, it's interesting to note as well that Nationals broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee has offered some tentative support. So this looks at least like one bit of legislation that won't be immediately repealed if there's a change of government. Uh, there's a text here for you from Ganya Hayden. It says, hi, oh, hi Karen. Uh, I'd, I'd just like to put my hand up for the first bid on that tablecloth. Name your starting price. It's not even a <laughs> tablecloth. It's a strange kind of vinyl cover. <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to burn it off somehow, I think. Yeah. Laser it. It's I, like a tattoo. I clean it down with bacterial wipes. Oh, it's awful. On most days. Yes, right. <laughs> On to the next topic, and the Media Council has issued a couple of interesting decisions, one of which is good and the other not so good for our media companies. Yeah, shall we start with the good one for our media companies? You might remember Fire and Fury. It was a documentary by Stuff Circuit about the mis- and disinformation sort of landscape in New Zealand. It received a lot of praise but also a lot of criticism from its subjects, and that was a lot of it over an editorial decision they made to not interview the people that purveyors of misinformation at the centre of the documentary. Uh, They didn't give them, I guess, what they thought was a right of reply. And uh, those people, they thought that generated complaints from people that were associated with some of those people. There were six of them they complained to the Media Council. Um, And I guess, although I will note as well that some of them did get a bit of a right of reply in the platform. So that's Sean Plunkett's Media Venture. He offered a platform to the subjects of the documentary, including Chantal Baker, Calvin Alp, Voices for Freedom. At one point, he actually invited Baker to contribute to the platform herself, though that partnership has yet to come to fruition. And so how did staff respond to the accusations? Uh, It said that the subjects' views were summarised in canvas within the documentary, Uh, But it didn't want to give them an on-camera interview, partly because of the risk they would use that platform to spread more disinformation, which is what the documentary was about. So in an interview with me on Media Watch, Paula Penfold, the documentary's host, summarised the decision-making like this. 
they've had their say. They have so many hundreds, thousands probably of hours of material on the internet already. And also part of the advice that we took, the guidelines that we were reading, uh, said that it's dangerous to give them a platform that's equal to the hate that they're already disseminating. And did the Media Council agree? Yeah, in essence, yes, on the issue of inaccuracy, which is one of the complaints, they notes that the council notes that one of the things it considers plainly true is that there was no conspiracy of national leaders, including the leaders of New Zealand, deliberately to harm the population by promoting the administration of approved vaccines. That's a direct quote. So obviously many of the documentary subjects have associated themselves with views that are counter to that and that would meet the criteria for misinformation uh, on that standard, on the issue of balance, that right of reply thing, it noted that it doesn't always expect media platforms to air the opposite view, particularly when that view is plainly untrue or harmful. So it uses the example not requiring Holocaust deniers to be contacted for their views in an article on the Holocaust, for instance. So the council acknowledges the argument that platforming some of the subjects of fire and fury could have caused some harm. Now, there are other reasons listed too. That's just two of them. Uh, it's a relatively extensively argued judgment. I'd encourage you to have a look at the Media Council's website if you want to read it. So, stuff circuit exonerated, not so much for News Talk ZB and the Herald, though. No, they were the subject of a less positive Media Council decision. Now, a while back, we talked about a segment on News Talk ZB where the political reporter Jason Walls talked about what he said was $20,000 in film commission funding given to the documentary Susie and the Virus about Susie Wiles. Now, some of the segment was a bit pejorative with that Walls telling News Talk ZB host Heather Duplessy Allen he was so sick of everything getting taxpayer money and why can't people just pay for it out of their own pocket? And that actually generated a Herald story as well, which began, would you pay 20000 for a documentary about science superhero Dr. Dr. Susie Wiles? Because you already did. Um, that's the end of the quote. It said uh, Walls was confused as well about the funding given the parlous state of New Zealand's healthcare system, which was getting a lot of headlines at that time and probably still is. Well, as I recall, there were some facts wrong in that. Yeah, the central figure, $20,000, that was wrong. Susie and the virus is part of a loading docks program and had only received $6,000 in production finance. And I think it had been confused with another separate project. So, uh, you know, perhaps Jason Walls should have known that Susie and the virus uh, didn't actually, wasn't, well, shouldn't have been confused about Susie and the virus because actually it was launched in 2020 in partnership with NZME and it de debuted on the Herald's website alongside a cover feature article for the paper's insert magazine canvas. And on top of that, uh, you have the fact that NZME, if you're call, calling into question public funding, NZME has received millions of dollars in public funding recently, including $255,000 for a Herald series called Unraveling Anxiety, almost $3 million for its Open Justice Court reporting project. And that may well be money well spent, but those projects, I guess, generated a notable lack of scrutiny from Newstalk ZB and others at NZME. And because of all this, all these factors, the segment generated complaints to the Media Council from Wild, 
Wales and two others, including the former TVNZ PR person, Andy Brotherston. So we've just got a minute or two, but how did the Herald respond and how did the Media Council rule? Yeah, it acknowledged that it had made mistakes, but basically said it corrected them. Uh, there was a couple of bits of Murray Kirkness response that would that were not received well by the complainants. For one thing, he said that Susie Wiles wasn't targeted. Uh, now, both the stories had Susie Wiles as their main headline and feature photo. He also said that some of the abuse she suffered was, may have been brought on by the fact that she tweeted objections to the inaccurate article about her. You know, obviously she found that pretty risable. Um, now, the Media Council, it was relatively sympathetic to NZME's point of view given the circumstances. It didn't uphold everything uh, on the issue of linking the DOCO funding to the state of New Zealand's healthcare system. It said the comparison was tenuous, but it didn't rule. It was unfair, but it did say that NZME needed to take responsibility for the abuse that arose from its errors, and it upheld complaints by Wiles and others about NZME's correction, which it said was too slow, wasn't fulsome enough. It took five days to put up, and it didn't note everything that was wrong in the original article, and that is the <laughs> end of my <laughs> summary of that that I've tried to put into a minute. You did. Well, very good. Thank you very much, Hayden, and we will speak to you. Will we speak to you before Christmas? Oh, I don't know. We don't don't have too much longer. Maths and me, we don't really gel, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe once more. (laughs) Maybe once more. Okay, thank you very much. Hayden Donnell with Midweek Media Watch.